and we shall be changed. Indeed, Lord, thank you for this promise that you give to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this promise that um, your resurrection and your victory over sin and death means victory for us as well. And so we look forward to that last day um, when we will be raised, when we will be completely different, and yet the same people just renewed, restored, um, completely healed, um, completely free of sin, with brand new bodies, now to worship you eternally um, and to live together as your people. And so we thank you, Lord, for that day. We look forward to that day, and we realize that that day has meaning and import for us today, um, that we live today in light of our glorious future in you and in light of the ways in which that future breaks into our present and um, redeems our past. So we thank you for that. And we ask today, Lord, even as we close and finish up this book of 1 Corinthians, we thank you, Lord, for, um, for your servant Paul and for his dedication to your people and the way he, um, the way he shepherded your people there in Corinth. And um, we ask, Lord, too, that we would be guided um, by you through him also, even as we finish up this final chapter. So we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. So this is the part where I'm going to let you all talk, right? So who, what, where, when, why? We've done this a lot over the course of the last few months. Um, what can you tell me about Corinth? What is it about this city? Um, how do they come to faith? What are some of the problems that they're dealing with now? And how is Paul going to address those problems? That's right, yeah, Sarah, it's a city of many different peoples, many different ethnicities, all in this one city. And wh- what do you think brought them there to Corinth? Why did they come to Corinth? Because, yeah, because of the trade, because of the harbors on either side. It had this interesting geographical formation that caused it to be a great stopping place um, for boats coming in from the east, boats coming in from the west, and they would, um, they would then haul their goods from one boat over this little tiny spit of land that Corinth was founded on and then to the other side so that then they could be shipped out. So you just had boats coming in from east and west and going out to east and west. So you just had a lot of traffic, a lot of trade, a lot of movement of different people groups and a lot of movement of stuff too going in and out. Um, and what did that lead to? What it, Culturally, how did that affect the culture of Corinth? It was multicultural, yeah, and it affected their faith as well, right? Their kind of what, the, who they worshipped and how they worshipped, didn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, lots of little gods and goddesses from all over the known world. Cults, yeah. Um, how did that influence their morals? Yeah. That's right. That's right. And some of the, it's sort of weird for us to even think about, but there were some um, sexualized rituals in some of these cults at the temples where they worshipped. Specifically, the Temple of Aphrodite was there in Corinth. And remember, Aphrodite is the Greek goddess of love. So naturally, that was part of part of that. But then also even just being a city where there's so much travel and men far away from home, there was a lot of um, there was a lot of sexual immorality that was rampant, and it, it, even even rampant in the church. Paul's shocked by that. That um, and and sometimes in the church they they used this idea of their freedom in Christ to say, well, I can go do this, and also this thought that somehow. Because they were so spiritual, what you do in your body doesn't matter. God doesn't care about what you do in your body. They thought that. And, um, and so they would do whatever they wanted with their bodies. Do you remember what kind of philosophy or, or um, ideology that was, that was that said that, that you could do anything goes in your body? That was one extreme that came from this one. Yeah, Gnosticism. Remember this idea of there being a secret knowledge that you could attain to. And um, in attaining to it, it was so mystic and spiritual. Um, and it also, it, within this um, mode of thought, the stuff of this world, the flesh and blood, the, um, the 
table in front of me. None of this is as real as the spiritual reality. And so whatever you did in the body didn't matter, they thought. Or you had to tame the body such that you couldn't, you couldn't do anything. You had to deny the body all sorts of urges. So that even what they found in chapter 7, he found that he's responding to some individuals who are saying they weren't even going to engage in sexual relations even though they were in a marriage in the, in the God-ordained, biblically approved, sanctioned place for sexual relationships. And he's saying, no, 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 no. It's not one or the other. It's not anything goes or nothing goes. It's actually, um, this is good. The body is good. The flesh is good. Going back to Genesis 1 and God saying about creation and the stuff of creation, it is good and yet fallen and broken. And so keeping, keeping um, sexuality within um, the stream bed that God has ordained for it is good. But it can, st- it, it, it can be there. It can be in the stream bed. It doesn't have to be a complete dry and barren land. So talking about that, um, so this Gnosticism was something that gripped them. What are some other um, thoughts and ideas that they, um, I'm thinking back to those first couple of chapters. What were some things that they were enamored of that, that affected the way they understood the gospel, that changed the way they understood the gospel and perverted the way they understood the gospel? This was a long time ago. We talked about this first and foremost. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, good one, Judy. Yeah, I do have it written down. <laughs> and ta- well, talking about talking about. Remember, we had those first several weeks, and we talked about Christ crucified and proclaiming the true gospel. They had been, they had gotten all spiritualized and kind of holier than thou and puffed up in their knowledge, their spiritual knowledge, as Paul says. And they began to think that their own wisdom, again, being being Greek Christians, wisdom is exalted within Greek thought and Greek philosophy. And some of them might have known some Greek philosophy. And so they're, say, they're using that to say how wise they are. And they, they really didn't talk about the weakness um, of the cross, the fact that God himself humbled himself to become um, uh, weak in that way for us in order to save us. They were ashamed of that, and they kind of hid that fact of the cross. And so their gospel was no gospel. And so Paul really spends those first few chapters reiterating what is the gospel and the beauty of the gospel, the paradox of the gospel, that ours is a God who doesn't exalt himself over us, but rather humbles himself to become one with us, engages with us in our darkest um, moments, enters into our, our flesh and blood and enters into our sin and takes it upon himself so that he might defeat it and destroy it through his own death. So that was something they were ashamed of. They didn't want to talk about that. And Paul is clarifying for them, no, that's, that's it. If you don't want to talk about that, then you don't understand the gospel because that is the gospel. And so those first couple of chapters were so beautiful, talking about God's folly in coming to be born as a baby in Bethlehem to live and to die and to rise again. God's folly is far wiser than human wisdom. Um, and he had a, several chapters about that. And there were some divisions, too, that he's speaking into during that time. Remember that there were some people who were lording over others the sense of their spiritual knowledge. Um, and remember, I talked about them being puffed up like um, Macy's Day Parade float or balloon. Um, he spends a lot of time in the letter correcting them about different things, correcting them about things that they have questions about. Remember that there's a certain um, formula to introduce something that they have a question about. Now concerning blah, 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 which is his way of saying, you wrote to me about blah, 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 so I'm going to address it. And so it sometimes seems non sequitur that he's going through, but um, he, he corrects them about certain things um, about the immorality that we've already talked about that they were engaging in, about um, the fact that they were taking each other to court um, rather than, uh, to a secular court, rather than discerning and deciding amongst themselves how to treat each other fairly as Christians. Um, and he was outraged by that. Um, how interesting that he's just as outraged by that as he is by the sexual immorality. Do you know, he, he's, not, he's not a prude in the sense of... Um, of of um, chastising them for the sexual immorality. He's 
these are both terrible. <laughs> you got to stop. <laughs> um, and again, with that, and I've said this again and again, but behind this misbehavior of theirs, of course, he's not so much concerned as this outward appearance of behavior. He's concerned about the thoughts and intentions of their hearts and um, about the fact that, he's, that they probably don't really get the gospel if this is the way they're behaving. And so that's why he continues to address all of these specific outward behaviors because um, essentially they display um, that they haven't really grasped the gospel in their heart of hearts, or some of them haven't. Um, so we saw more issues in chapter 7 through 11. I already talked about marriage and divorce and this idea that some of them were even thinking maybe we have to get divorced from each other because, because sex is bad, is what they thought. And, and Paul's saying, no, 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 stay, stay with it, it's okay. And even if you're married to an unbeliever, stay with the unbeliever. Who knows? Um, you, by being a believer, are making the other person holy, and your children are holy, and that person might come to believe in Jesus because of your behavior. Um, and he talks about pagan food, this idea of the meat sacrificed to idols. And do you remember, what is the bottom line in his long discussion about meat sacrificed to idols? Anybody remember? We spent some time on that. If it's sacrificed in a temple, then it is not for them to eat. Right. Uh, and they are not to be a stumbling block to others. Right. By eating things that they know should not be eaten. Right. And he's, he's qualifying all of this with, that's great, Gordon, he's qualifying all of this with this idea of saying, Yes, you have this spiritual knowledge in Christ. You know that these other gods that call themselves gods are not in fact gods. And so you, you have this freedom where essentially if this god isn't a god, then you're not worshiping the god by eating this meat. But among your number, as Christians, you have others in your group who are whose consciences uh, are not as free as yours is. And so um, you need to be aware of that person, that weaker brother, so to speak, and you need to, um, you need to be aware of their needs, and therefore you need to flee and stay away from any meat sacrificed to idols in the temples. And anywhere that you might go where someone tells you explicitly, well, this was sacrificed in a temple, then you have to not eat it for the sake of someone else's conscience. Um, even though you might be free, even though your conscience is free and you know you're not worshiping some other god by eating it. So he, he refers to that idea again of love and looking out for the brother or sister that, whose conscience would be seared by that kind of activity. And he talks about that also when it comes down to um, this idea of these many gifts that each person in the body has. And he talks about love as being um, the factor that determines their behavior. So it's interesting that we see this theme cropping up, especially in the second half of the letter, looking out, again, kind of really looking out for their neighbor, as they would for themselves, but treating their Christian brother um, um, in the way they would want to be treated, out of love, out of deference, out of respect, and out of a sense of honor for, um, for weaknesses in other people as well. That's about that. Before I, I'll keep trucking along. <laughs> um, remember, after um, after chapters seven through ten, we, he really got into some ideas, um, some issues in their corporate worship. Remember those issues? Um, we saw them in chapter eleven. The ladies were flaunting their beauty by not wearing their veils when they prayed or prophesied, and he said, "Ladies, cover it up." Um, but he wasn't as concerned about that as he was about the Lord's Supper and the way that they were um, disrespecting each other in the way they ate the Lord's Supper. They were treating it as they would one of their social meals where you had different settings, place settings, and important people got to eat first and have a bigger portion than those who were poor or unimportant. And even some idea behind that was that those who were working, who were maybe even servants or slaves, weren't able to get to the gathering as early as those who had a free schedule. And so they, they didn't even get to eat 
because it had all been eaten up by the time they got there. He's saying this is, he was, even as he expresses his opinions and emotions about different things, you see he'll get very passionate about something. He gets so passionate about the Lord's Supper. He says, but in this I do not commend you. And he lays into them for um, what they've been doing with the Lord's Supper. And he reiterates, it's one of these beautiful parts in Paul's letters where he, we hear Jesus' words uh, from, from the night before he died. Paul quotes Jesus' words. We call them the words of institution. This is my body, which is given for you. And we say it every time we have communion. This is um, the cup of the new covenant, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Those words, um, which the ministers, with the, which we say every time we have communion, that promise, this thing that you're holding, it really is also something else because of God's promise, because of the gift of um, Jesus Christ's sacrifice for us. And so he's saying this is no ordinary supper and you can't just eat it in your flesh. You can't just um, go about business as usual in the way you would with a social dinner. It has to be different. Otherwise, it's not actually the supper of the Lord. So again, that love has to qualify their action and their behavior um, in terms of how they treat the Lord's Supper and how they treat each other in, in when it's time to partake of the Lord's Supper. He talks about it also with gifts. Does anybody remember what was the, what was the problem, the issue with the spiritual gifts that they had? Well, they thought that speaking in tongues was above all others. Yeah. That's right. They there were that's right Gordon there were so many gifts that were given but they loved speaking in tongues so much that um they almost made it a mark of being spiritual. They wanted everyone to speak in tongues and they thought it was just the best thing ever. And he doesn't denigrate tongues. He doesn't say no you should never ever do that. But he says that is simply for building yourself up and not for building up the body. Again, it's this ethic of love. How do we know what to do? How do we know how to live out our faith? He's pointing back to this love and to um, the love that we've received in Christ, but also the love that we then pour out um, for each other. And he talks about the, you know, the, the different gifts given according to the Spirit um, to each member, that every member of the body of Christ is valuable and important, even if that person in the body of Christ doesn't feel important or doesn't feel like their gifts are the most important gifts. He says, no, they're all important. They're all necessary for the body to function healthily as a whole unit, um, the body of Christ. And so he's talking about this many members, but one body. And he talks about these gifts. He essentially falls down towards, um, uh, in chapter 14, of saying, if you have a tongue but there's no interpretation, be quiet because... No one will be able to understand what you're saying, and the body of Christ will not be built up. And unbelievers who come in won't be convicted of their sin. Rather, um, he even says, he even exalts one other gift, and he says, I wish all of you would prophesy or proclaim or preach so that all would be convicted of the gospel as they enter in. All unbelievers would be convicted and that there would be this word of knowledge, this building up and encouraging of the church through preaching um, and proclaiming. Okay. Um, in the midst of that, remember in the midst of chapter 12 and chapter 14, about these gifts, these spiritual gifts given to the body of Christ, remember we have that wonderful, beautiful um, passage that we read at so many weddings about love. And really this ethic of love is right there in the heart of what he's counseling them and telling them to do when it comes to their gifts, when it comes to the Lord's Supper, when it comes to veils, when it comes to pagan uh, food, sacrifice to idols, when it comes to marriage and divorce, immorality and lawsuits. All comes back to love. Okay. <laughs> we talked about, um, in chapter 15, he takes on Another topic. Remember what we talked about in chapter 15. This is one of those glorious passages that just, you know, there's so many things to memorize and look into in this um, chapter that we looked at these last few weeks. Um, what is the main topic in chapter 15 and why is Paul addressing this topic now? The resurrection, yeah. And what was that over there, too? Life after death. Yes, the resurrection. 
What do you think, do you recall what the problem was? Why does he need to address the resurrection? If they didn't, that's right, Kate, if they didn't believe in the resurrection, all of everything else didn't matter. And he makes that good point. Um, if, if Christ is not raised from the dead, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, right? Forget about it. Let's go be hedonists. Or as I said last week, let's go worship trees, like my father said. You know, if, if Christ is not raised from the dead, forget about it. What in the world are we doing? It's not just about a morality improvement society. Um, no, there is this very real future hope that we have as Christians. And our very real future hope comes um, from the fact that we will be raised from the dead. And we can trust that we will be raised from the dead because Christ was raised from the dead. And so it appears as though some people in Corinth were saying that we, in fact, will not be raised from the dead. That maybe some in their midst who had died, there was some question about whether or not they would be raised from the dead. And Paul, Paul is saying... No, let me remind you of the truth of the gospel, that there is this inextricable part of the gospel, which is that Jesus didn't just die for our sins, although they were questioning that too. They were questioning the cross at the beginning, which makes you wonder, what were they even talking about when they talked about the gospel? Um, Yes, Jesus died, and then he rose again. And he goes through in the first part of this chapter with this beautiful, um, back to the basics of the gospel, where he reiterates um, something that almost sounds like one of our creeds. Remember, we looked it over a couple of weeks ago. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, and then that he began appearing to all of these people. And he lists all of these different people who had seen Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, in the flesh, and reminds them that all of these people couldn't be making this up. Jesus really, truly rose from the dead. And so after he establishes that Jesus really had um, been raised from the dead, really did rise, he goes on to say, well, if he rose, then we know that we also will rise from the dead. How can some say that there is no resurrection of the dead for us as well? Um, that, so he's, he's going through and he talks about it so beautifully. He keeps arguing with all of these ifs. Remember all of the ifs from last week and the week before if, if, if his logic is so impeccable um, what in, he, he ends by saying what in the world or he ends that first section by saying what in the world would we do if this were not the case um, forget about it, let's go home if, we, if the fact of the resurrection is not a fact um, then, then, it, then why am I being persecuted for the gospel, he says um, why are we why are we even pursuing this? Why are we a part of um, the Christian faith if we don't know for sure that we'll be raised from the dead? And then he goes in, we talked about this last week, he goes into some of the how and the when. How will we be raised? And he talks about the resurrection body will be different from this body. And remember, he used that beautiful analogy of seeds being sown into the ground. And you, you don't put in tulip bulbs and expect to see Narcissus. You expect to see a tulip when the tulips start to bloom. And he talks about burying the seed, burying this body which will die, um, which is like a seed of the plant that will come. And um, in this body um, will decay and there's this sense of dishonor and yuckiness about it which they were already probably um, intensely aware of with their own Gnostic leanings. Remember if this stuff is gross then even grosser is how this stuff deteriorates once it dies. And he's saying, no. And they couldn't imagine, how could this stuff be raised? And he said, just like a seed. You bury a seed in the cold, cold ground, in the dirt, and then you wait. And in time, something beautiful comes about. Something beautiful, something lovely, um, something that is full of life. Um, So again, that idea of this um, seed and then the plant, there's this difference between the body here on earth that will die and the body that will be raised. But he continues to reiterate that the body that will be raised, the new body that we will have, is also physical. We will not become these disembodied souls floating around, or even worse, becoming one with each other. Um, We're not going to be sitting on a cloud with wings and halos strumming on little tiny harps for all eternity. That actually sounds pretty boring to me. We'll have new, brand new bodies that will not um, 
that we'll, we will be free from sin, we'll be free from any sickness or illness, never to die again. Um, we'll have these beautiful, healthy bodies in ways we can't even imagine. And um, again, if you want a good picture of this, The Great Divorce is such a good book. If you've never read C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce, it's a little short volume and it's not as heady as, as some of his theological books, but it's so theological. And yet he, the way he um, addresses theology in that book is through all of these beautiful images. So you get these amazing images. It's a it's, the whole story is this idea that these, um, a busload of people take a field trip from hell to visit heaven and what they see there in the presence of God as um, those who are redeemed are in God's presence is amazing. Um, it is more real than the reality of this earth. Um, and, and the reality of heaven is so beautiful. The life that's there is so tangible that it's almost painfully so for these shades from the underworld. It's a really interesting book, quick read. Um, but, um, but in that, you get the sense that this raised body, this new body, um, is something even more beautiful than this body, and yet just as physical. Um, so with that, um, he talks about the difference between this body and the next body, and then also that the identity will be preserved. Again, you, sow, um, you, sow a tulip, you plant a tulip bulb and you expect to see a tulip. Well, Mary will still be Mary in heaven. And Bitsy will still be Bitsy in heaven. And there's this sense in which our identities will be preserved, um, which is beautiful. Remember that New Age monism, which is this idea that all is one, and we're all just trying to get back to be one together. You hear all the time in our culture this idea that there's just one world spirit, and we all just tap into this world spirit. You hear the disdain in my voice. What it means is that our individuality will be destroyed. And yet God loves the fact that we're not just 31 flavors of ice cream. We're a uh, 100,000 billion different beautiful individuals that he's created. He delights in our individuality, the quirks of who we are. That's one of the things, again, with this baby girl. We just can't wait to find out her, what her personality is like. She's going to be so different. There will be things that will be like me. There will be things that will be like Scott. And yet she'll be her own totally different totally unique person and that's something so beautiful about the way that the Lord creates us no two of us are alike and that will be true that beauty will be preserved in heaven as well so that's part of the how and the when is that this will all happen we're not really this will all happen that we'll have these brand new bodies when Jesus returns so that those who are still alive when Jesus returns will be transformed and those who have died when Jesus returns, we'll be raised from the dead and, um, and raised to new bodies. So all of this to say, um, some of these verses are just worth going over and even memorizing and, and love. You know, he reiterates in verse 56, this is not to be missed in the midst of all of this glorious language about the truth of our resurrection, the truth of the fact that we will be raised. Um, he points out that... Um, Death, death has no victory over us. Death has no power over us, even though death will claim each one of us. But the, there's no sting to death in this life because, um, because sin has been forgiven. And we see that in verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. Um, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see there that inextricable combination of Jesus' death and his resurrection, how both are so crucial and important. They're really tied together as one event and not two separate events. That Jesus died for us, he took on our sin, he atoned for our guilt, our sin is forgiven, and therefore because of his death, our death is not the final word. Our death is just um, temporary. Our death has no permanent victory. And so when we look at death in this life, when we lose our loved ones, when we face our own death, we can remember, my sin has been forgiven. This is not the final word. And I love how our liturgy for funerals just makes it so clear. Death is not the final word, um, but there is life for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Um, so again, that victory. And how then in these verses 58, verse 58 is so beautiful. How do we live in light of this victory? And this is a great segue into chapter 16. He's saying these 
Im- these movable Corinthians, these, um, they're not steadfast. They're fickle. They go um, with the changing winds. They follow the, the philosophy that they're used to as Greeks. They follow the philosophy and the ideas of the world around them, like Gnosticism. And he's trying to root them and ground them on the gospel throughout this whole letter. And this final word on the resurrection is this point, because of our sure and certain hope, this thing that nothing else can provide, no other philosophy, no other human religion has this sure and certain hope of resurrection. Um, No one else has this hope that we have. And therefore, because we have this hope that cannot be moved, then we in this life cannot be moved. We cannot be deterred from our faith. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Um, This is one of the verses. Did I tell you this last week? This is one of the verses that um, I've put together on a list that hopefully my mother will pray over me. That's the plan. While I'm in in labor. Yeah, that my labor will not be in vain. (laughs) Yeah, it won't. There's an end to it. And that's again where the metaphor of birth and labor looking forward to something beautiful um, is, is worth undergoing, isn't it? And all of you mothers in this room can affirm that. And you have so much for me. You know, this too will end. You know, my puffy feet will go away. And I'll be able to sleep at night, maybe not for several months. But, but it, will, it will all have, um, as my grandmother prays, I will have a happy issue out of all of my afflictions, which is a phrase from our prayer book. Um, and so this is true for us in this life. There will be a glad issue for us out of all of our afflictions in this life. And that is what is to keep us going. Um, that hope in the Lord, that trust that his promise is sure, that, um, that our victory is uh, tied into Jesus' own victory. And so that's what gives us courage and strength for today, to keep on keeping on. Okay, I'll finally get to chapter 16. But as you've read, if you've read ahead, chapter 16, again, it's, pre- it's pretty straightforward. So let me start with chapter 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside some, put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And, I, and when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Now Paul is talking specifically, he says, now concerning, so this was something they had mentioned in their letter to him. We find out elsewhere that he is, um, he is collecting funds from all of the churches that he's been in throughout Asia Minor and Greece, and he is going to redirect these funds to the place throughout the Mediterranean basin where Christians need it the most. And at that time, that was Jerusalem. And so um, even Luke talks about this in the book of Acts, and I've given you a couple of references. Um, Does someone want to look up Acts chapter 11, verse 28, and just read those three verses for us? Mm-hmm. 28, 29, and 30. Uh, well, I'm sorry. No, chapter 28. No, I'm sorry. Acts 11. Acts. Yeah, Acts 11. Chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Great. Go for it, Gordon. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So we see an example here. We're not sure if this is the exact same one. This appears to be an earlier collection. But when there was trouble or trial in one part of the world, they would collect what they had and send it there to those who were impoverished. Persecutions also cropped up a lot in Judea um, at the hands of the Jewish authorities and leaders. And so um, these Greek Christians and Greek and Jewish Christians around the Mediterranean basin would save up some of their money and send it with 
um, someone that they designated. And just think, there were no credit cards, so it's not like they could send a check. It was like they're sending that hard, cold coinage with someone to go to Jerusalem and to bring it so that it could be put to the use of those um, in need. And we won't flip back to Acts chapter 4, but if you see this, this is part of that same Christian charity, that love and generosity that was already a part of of their faith. Um, Chapter 4 talks about them having those early, early Christians in Jerusalem having everyone everyone having everything in common. So um, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. There's this sense of an extreme generosity, and Paul is carrying this on um, in these newborn churches all around the Mediterranean basin. Um, so he's encouraging them to save up ahead of his visit. He doesn't want to have to pass the hat when he's there, and they don't have anything to give. He wants them to think about it. He wants them to pray about it. He actually talks about it being proportional. Um, as he may prosper, um, there's this sense of which putting aside something has this foresight. It's intentional. It's based on what each person has, how prosperous each person has, depends on the amount that will be given, and then how amazing that they collect it all together on a Sunday. This is just like our Sunday worship when we pass the alms basin, right? And that certainly goes towards our um, the tithe that supports our church, um, but our church supports those who are in poverty. And so there's also um, this idea of this extra collection is possible for those who are in poverty. Whenever, whenever there's a disaster, I, as canon missioner, I have people calling up, calling me up and saying, "Okay, what are we doing for the tsunami? People affected by the tsunami. What are we doing for? Um, how are we giving to support um, those who are need in need around the world?" Um, so Paul is modeling this here in this chapter, in this last business chapter. Um, he's also going to talk about his own visits. Um, and um, traveling plans for others, um, those whom they love, including um, Apollos, who was one of the leaders that had already come to preach to them. So continuing in verse 5, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord, as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. So we see these visits. Um, Paul promises to come and visit them, and um, we find out in, in, um, from Luke in Acts chapter 20 that he does actually visit them according to what he says. Um, he has an incredible opportunity for ministry in Ephesus, and we know he stayed in Ephesus for two years. That's what Luke tells us. And how amazing that he combines this idea of the opportunity with the opposition. There is opposition because there's an opportunity. He says, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. He has the opportunity to preach the gospel and continue to grow the church there, even though um, there's also this threat of persecution. Um, And so he's not ready yet to come to see them in Achaia, but he will, and he will after he goes through Macedonia, which is to the north. Um, and this is a promise, almost, I don't think it's a threat, but he's promised before to come and visit them. There is this encouragement for them to um, take heed to what he said in this letter because he's coming to visit. Um, I just remember as a child my parents saying, don't, you know, don't make me have to come up there and see you in person. <laughs> he's promising. He will come in person. <laughs> they can, they can, 
bet on that. And he does. He does go to see them as we see in Acts chapter 20. So that will give them uh, added incentive to take heart to what, uh, what he said to them. He talks about Timothy. Timothy is young, young, young. A young, young man who had a, um, who had a Greek father and a Jewish mother and who, is, um, who d- just came to the Lord early on, early on in Paul's travels and early on in his life. And Paul has brought him along with him. Paul sees promise in him. Paul has seen that he has gifts for leadership. And many, many years later, towards the end of Paul's life, we'll see in First and Second Timothy that this Timothy is still very young. So who knows how young he must be here? Maybe he's in his teens even, but he's going around preaching the gospel. He's been gifted by the Lord to preach the gospel, but he's a little bit timid. He always, it, we see that in First and Second Timothy. He's a little bit timid. And so Paul's um, trying to pave the way for him. He's sending Timothy to these Corinthians, and he doesn't want them to gobble him up. Don't chew him up and spit him out. You got to be nice to him. Uh, Jesus was young when he started preaching in the temple. Yeah, that's right. Twelve. There you go. Yeah, that's right, Kay. So he's encouraging them. Don't despise this young one. He's got. He's got. The Lord is with him. He is doing the work of the Lord, as he says, as I am. So don't despise him. Let him um, help him on his way in peace. In other words, give him a gift to help him keep going. Help him financially, he's saying, um, and welcome him as you would welcome me. So they may or may not really want a visit from Timothy, but they do really want a visit from Apollos. And they've actually written to him about that. You see that in verse 12. Now concerning our brother Apollos, he's saying, I, tr- I told him to go see you, but it was not the right time. This word, it was not at all his will. It doesn't have a his in the Greek, so we're not sure. could be either that Apollos couldn't find time to go. It wasn't Apollos' will to go and visit them, or it could be that it wasn't the Lord's will for Apollos to go and visit them just yet. But note that there's no animosity. Paul has no animosity towards Apollos. Their imagined division pitting Paul against Apollos, as we saw earlier in the letter, that's in their heads. They've done that um, even though that was not something that Paul or Apollos ever did. You know, they've sort of pitted them in opposition to each other and taken on these factions. And Paul's demonstrating his own goodwill toward Apollos here. Okay. Any questions? I'm going to pick up in verse 13. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. And now I urge you, brothers... You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaius because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. So he's, um, we have a little moral note here, right? <laughs> he's just reiterating. Stay awake. Be watchful. Much like the Lord Jesus said to his disciples when he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Watch here with me for an hour. Um, stay alert for the Lord's coming. Stay alert to um, your de- the devil who's prowling around you, as um, we find out in some of the other letters, not Paul's letters. But um, be aware of what's going around you. Be alert and aware Stand firm in the faith, and that standing firm in the faith reiterates what we heard at the end of chapter 15. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Um, This act like men is great. He's telling them, stand up, be strong, act like men. And how amazing that this strength of being mature, of having this maturity spiritually, is accompanied with the love that he talks about in verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. Isn't that an amazing verse after hearing about all of these different divisions and quarrels and questions that they had about everything, his bottom line. And that's where this particular verse just pops out. This is the summary of everything he's been telling them. Um, Just like chapter 13 was the summary of everything he's been telling them in chapter form. This is it in verse form. Um, You're not sure whether or not you're going to go eat the meat sacrificed at the temple? Let everything you do be done in love. Um, You're not sure about 
um, marriage or divorce, let everything you do be done in love. You're not sure what to do about wearing a head covering in worship? Let everything you do be done in love. You're waiting and you really want to receive the Lord's Supper, but not everyone's there yet? Let everything you do be done in love. Um, You think you have a spiritual gift that's super awesome and is better than everybody else's spiritual gift? Let everything you do be done in love. Um, So he's just continuing to reiterate what he's already said. And that's part of that spiritual maturity, that part, part of acting like men and like women, being strong in the faith. Any thoughts about that or questions about that? Do you see how it just pops out? It's like, that's, it's like the three-dimensional verse in this last chapter that just ties everything together for the whole book. And now he goes back to some business. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> and back to business. Um, now I urge you, brothers. Um, he talks about these households and these early Christians who came to faith, Stephanus um, and his friends, Fortuna, or relatives maybe, Fortunatus and Achaius. He's saying that um, these are the leaders that they're to look to. They've had these other leaders, apparently, that have been all puffed up with knowledge, thinking they're all that, thinking they know everything and they really don't. And he's pointing to those who came to faith first, who really get it. Um, and the reason they get it, he says, is because they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. These are, this is what true leadership is about. True leadership is about service. And so those are the ones that they're to look up to. Those are the ones, the kinds of leaders that they are to emulate and esteem are the ones who have devoted themselves to service. Um, he even credits the Corinthians with the benefits that he's received from those three as they've come to visit him. He said, you didn't come to visit me, but they came to visit me, and I will credit it to you. Um, as wonderful as they were to me, I'll credit to all of you Corinthians because they came and they helped me. They came and they served me to make up for your absence. That's a little dig. You weren't here to help me, and I needed some help. But these three servant leaders came and helped give recognition to such men. Okay, now one last little bit, one last little greetings, and then also um, he's going to take up the pen himself, which is a common practice in these ancient letters, for the one who's dictating the letter to then take the pen from the scribe and write one last final word. And so it'll be interesting to hear what Paul's one last final word to them in his own handwriting will be. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be a curse. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. So one last greeting, again, from Priscilla and Aquila, who we know were known to the Corinthians. And um, they're sort of these great friends and co-workers with Paul that we see come up all throughout Paul's letters and in, in the book of Acts as well. Of the six times that they're mentioned, Priscilla's name is mentioned first four out of six times, which is very unusual for a lady. But Paul, Luke calls her Priscilla. Paul always calls her Prisca, which is like the term of endearment version of her name. Isn't, it'd be like, it's like his little name. Mm-hmm. So he's just, he just dearly loves this couple who has worked with him in the Lord. And so he's sending them greetings, greetings to the church from them. Um, he's talking about these greetings with a holy kiss. Again, it was not sexualized. It was just a way of greeting each other. Um, and then, again, he picks up the pen. And what does he mention? First and foremost, once again in verse 22, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. That's strong language. Yeah. A curse upon anyone who does not love the Lord. The love for each other comes about from a love for the Lord. And the love for the Lord comes about from having received the Lord's love for us. Um, And so we can only have love for him if we receive his love for us. It's this reciprocity, this receiving of his one-way unconditional love given to us in Christ Jesus. We pour back that love and gratitude 
um, to him, returning that love. And we also, that love pours out in our hearts, overflows um, in love for each other. Um, So the direction of that is important, but the sign of someone having no love for the Lord, he's certainly not going to love his fellow Christians. Um, And is he even a fellow Christian? And Paul is saying no. Um, Our Lord come is this Aramaic um, word, that you might have heard before, especially in certain praise music from the 70s, Maranatha. It's, this, it's like he's saying, these are all Greek speakers, but Paul is using an Aramaic word that they wouldn't have known firsthand, um, that they would know. They would know what this means, Maranatha. And there's some sense in which maybe it was used even in their worship as a way of saying, come Lord Jesus, come into our midst, come and transform us, come again. We're awaiting your second coming and all of what that brings. And so it's a beautiful prayer to pray. I remember, I mean, even 16 years ago, or when the two towers fell and I was staying with my parents in Connecticut at their home and we're watching the news, that's um, one of those quick prayers that just means, Lord, have mercy. Come, Lord Jesus. Come into our midst. We need your presence now. Um, We want you to come back so things don't get worse. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, our Lord, come. It's a beautiful prayer. What's that? (laughs) He's taking his time. I know. All the more reason to pray it. Maranatha, Maranatha. I have a feeling I'll be praying that a lot this week. and so he, he, his final words, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you, grace as a greeting, Karin, and my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. He's urging them to have love for each other, but he's also giving them his own love as a last parting word. Isn't that beautiful? Any thoughts or questions? We've done it. We're done. <laughs> okay, good. Well, let's, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for um, your love that covers our sins, your love that is so um, giving and sacrificial, that you would humble yourself even to redeem us, uh, that you would be, um, be emptied of everything in your great wisdom, which is so hard for us to understand, uh, but that you would come to us to redeem us from sin and from death. And we thank you, Lord, for that assurance that we have in you. And we thank you, Lord, for the love then that we give back to you out of gratitude. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to cause our love to increase, even as we receive your love for us. And that you would cause our love to increase towards you and also to overflow out in love for each other. Miraculously, Lord, would you be the one to fill us up to the full with overflowing. And so I thank you, Lord, for the love that's in this room as we are sisters in you. We're um, united by bonds that are um, stronger even than bonds of blood. We're united by the bonds of faith in you as one body. And so we thank you, Lord, for our time these last several months looking at 1 Corinthians, this letter of love. And we ask, Lord, that you would um, continue to give us um, strength and, and love for each other and love for your word as we continue to study your word in these next few months looking at John. So we lift this up to you and we ask it in your name. Amen.